Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, please to say, Steve Whiting, City Private Bank Global Chief Investment Strategist. Steve, Teflon S&P 500, come on. What is going to break this thing? Well, um, while the U.S. is getting safe haven inflows from the rest of the world, you can take a look at both bonds and stocks in the United States. You can take a look at the U.S. dollar as evidence of that. Um, you know, this is an unlikely time for U.S. outperformance really to wane while these concerns are more centered in the rest of the world. Um, does it go too far? Well, 1,200 basis points of outperformance of U.S. stocks versus the rest of the world, um, you know, seems pretty far. It seems uh, as if not only do we discount a rebound in ETS, but maybe an uninterrupted one. You know, the question then is um, sort of what is the opportunity for long-term investors um, who might want to, again, look beyond um, interruptions to the Chinese economy and its impact on the world? Um, and then you start to say, well, wait a second, you know, ought rates be this low? Um, should all the inflows go to a few stocks in the world in one country? Well, then, uh, then the game changes. Long central banks, short growth. That's the quote coming from Alberto Gallo of Algebris. And here's the quote as follows. After a decade of QE and declining nominal and real interest rates, the substitution effect is not working as planned. Assets with a direct link to interest rates continue to outperform versus assets whose performance depends on economic growth. What do you make of that, Steve, that we're long central banks, we're short growth, and pretty much every asset class reflects that at the moment? Look, I, you know, I have basically disagreed that fundamentals and asset prices, you know, have just completely gone in different directions. Um, you know, U.S. rates are higher than the rest of the world. We've had somewhat higher trend economic growth. Um, you know, you see movements um, in credit defaults and credit spreads, you know, generally look like each other. Um, and, you know, the equities that have had the firmest, most confident EPS gains um, have yeah. increased the most. Now, this latest little round here gets a little bit interesting. I mean, there aren't many times, if you really look closely, that stocks and bonds are giving you different messages. Um, I think that this period may be one of those that's a little suspect, where in the U.S. case, you've right. gotten fallen rates, improving credit and equities all at the same time. And, but I don't think that's really the, the case so much globally. You know, uh, Stephen, you're the best I know at linking in the profit model into our American economy. Uh, you've done that for years at Citigroup. And I, I got one simple question. I look at Paul Krugman's one volume on macroeconomics, and he gets to profit on page 530. I mean, it's usually buried in economic textbooks. For our audience right now, link the American economy into the profit expectations of American business. Are they still linked or are they completely blown up by Fed action? Well, look, you know, one thing that I think that people might not get often is that investment restraint, right? Weak CapEx, weak supply, you know, can boost profitability and boost returns. And when you have, you know, a surge in investment and weak current profits and lots of supply, you know, you, you harm returns. Um, and you might have uh, harmed economic growth because of that. Now, one of the areas that's been sort of really strong, if you just want to look at um, a piece of this, is what's happened in the U.S. 
you know, where we've invested a tremendous amount in oil and petroleum production and, and, and gas production in the United States. And, you know, all this investment, again, is not generating a hell of a lot of return when you take a look at, um, you know, the, the performance of those shares. And that, that's the piece yeah. again, well, right? So that you can link this to, you know, strong supply, weak return. Right. We go to Lisa Bramowitz now, oil expert. You've been great on this, Lisa. The markdown of high-yield oil stuff, where is that right now? I mean, a couple years ago, we cleared out all the garbage oil stuff, right, in junk? No, we didn't, actually. That we didn't. Exactly that's the, the point. Issue, and that's the reason why you're seeing bankruptcies pick back up, because what you're seeing is the survival, the survivability of some of these shell producers is being called into question. They took on too much debt and are not that profitable uh, right now, given that. And we expect that to continue. I'm trying to, to struggle to understand, Stephen. You talked about how bonds and stocks seem to be sending different messages in the U.S., and I want to pick up on that idea. How long can we persist in this Goldilocks environment? Well, I think, you, you know, look, um, an extreme example of that, and there's no way to say so, <laughs> that this gets, you know, a, a little crazy when you started to say how long can it, can it last. But um, an extreme example, this is the late 1990s. 1998 was a period um, of an Asian shock. Southeast Asian GDP contracted 13%, um, and U.S. growth was strengthened, and U.S. asset prices after some volatility um, went up a lot, and they continued to go up for another three years. So, you know, it is possible. You know, I tend to think um, this particular issue, this negative shock from a natural disaster, the coronavirus, um, and the precedent of these things in the past not being permanent losses in output, that we can see some, again, some variability in this very trade. It doesn't mean that it all goes away, um, but some of the inflows specifically um, to U.S. dollar assets might, might reverse a bit. And you might see, again, some interest rates increase and some a little bit of fading out and some, some recovery, again, in, in some, of the, some of the other markets. Um, you know, I do think that we came into this period, at least in the fixed income markets, you know, with U.S. yields at a premium to other developed markets. I mean, you know, we have, uh, we'll call it one and a half percent global interest rates, including high yield and, uh, and emerging markets. Yeah. Take out the U.S. and that's zero five. So, you know, the U.S. bond market, again, from, from the perspective of figuring out where the economies and where, where, where rates should be, it might be a bit higher rate, but we did come into this with a yield premium with a central bank, you know, that net-net had six tightenings um, over the last couple of years compared to the rest of the world, which did nothing. Steve, quick yes or no? Are you long copper here? Um, I think we'd be optimistic on a recovery in, in copper post sort of a very severe disruption of China's economy, which, you know... Just yes, a quick yes or no, Steve. Exactly yes. Well, well um, I'd say I that's a yes. Like Steve, like he's rattled. He's got to buy roses, and he's deciding whether they should put them in a copper vase. Um, Let's let Steve go. Steve, we've got to wrap it up, Steve. We've got to wrap it up. You have a wonderful Valentine's Day. How, how long are you long? That's the question. That's he's the long question. about, he's, I don't know. He's, he's long, long for long, long stem, stem roses. roses. <laughs> Steve Wine in there. Sitting. Rival Bank. Steve Wine, thank you as always. Expert and a strategist. Profit, profit work as well. What we decided to do with the virus and epidemic in China is really go away from the media 
and sort of the inflammatory articles and speak to prose. We are honored that Anthony Fauci could join us, our great immunologist. We are honored that Jennifer Rohn would join us from UCL yesterday out of University of Washington Microbiology. And we're particularly thrilled, John, to have a gentleman who's a legacy of Rockefeller University in this city. It is the true foundation of virology worldwide. Mr. Baltimore's work and others decades ago, and if Peter Hotez on with us again, is a great honor. We are really fortunate to have him. Dr. Peter Hodez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, joins us now. Doctor, fantastic to have you with us on the program. I'd just like to talk about the politics at the moment between the United States and China. The US says they're offering China help, and that the, the help they're offering hasn't been accepted by the Chinese. Beijing today is saying they're welcome to come, and the WHO has said nothing has been decided. Doctor, what's your insight on what is going on? Just the politics of these kind of investigations and various countries trying to get their hands around the same data. Well, you know, this is not, obviously, this is not a time to play politics. Uh, you know, with the central China, Wuhan is in free fall right now. Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, 75% of the 60,000 cases and most of the deaths occurring in Wuhan. We learned uh, yesterday that more than a thousand uh, healthcare workers have been infected, so they're on the front lines. Uh, the, the, the economy of China is in serious jeopardy, especially because central China is closed out. Remember, it's not just Wuhan, and it's Hubei province. Uh, commerce between Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and uh, Macau has been cut off. No flights are going in, and to uh, this is a time when when the world's you know it's easy to say, but it's it's actually quite true. The world's countries need to be get to, need to get together. We're actually applying ancient technologies to this problem. I mean, we're talking about these quarantine of ships. I mean, we did that in the 14th century uh, in Croatia in order to prevent bubonic plague from coming in from Asia Minor, and that's what we're still doing. We're still talking about collecting plasma from previously infected patient to administer antibodies or just ancient technologies, we could do better than that. Well, Dr. let's talk about how we can do better because there has been all kinds of questions asked over the last couple of days on transparency, on underreporting. Doctor, just how difficult is it to get the data anywhere near accurate as an assessment to what is happening on the ground right now in China? Well, I think, you know, what's happening also is the Chinese, you know, to be fair, the Chinese themselves are struggling collecting the data. And we're learning that the diagnostic test that's being used is not adequate, maybe only 30 to 40 percent sensitive. So they had to revert to clinical diagnosis, meaning putting patients uh, in a CAT scanner to see lesions on the lungs. So they're also struggling uh, with the data. So it's a race to get all these new technologies uh, into China as rapidly as possible, including uh, new diagnostics, new drugs, and new vaccines. And that requires unprecedented levels of international cooperation because no one country has a monopoly on technologies for this. I mean, all basically what's happened is all of the G20 countries have failed to work together to put together technologies to respond to these pandemics. This, this was, in man, many aspects of this, were avoidable. Dr. Hotez uh, failed to take control of this. I want to pick up on that, especially as we get a sense that this is increasingly infectious, that it, even if it's not necessarily fatal, it is spreading quickly. We had Ira Longini, an advisor to the World Health Organization, saying yesterday that two-thirds thirds of the world's population could catch uh, this particular coronavirus. Do you buy that? Well, you know, with the new virus agent, you know, all bets are off. We, we never really know till we know. Um, you know, there are a number of things, 
things that are positive that could happen and a number of scary things that could happen. On the positive side, sometimes these coronaviruses are seasonal in nature, especially in the northern hemisphere, so they tend to uh, die down a bit as we move into the spring and summer. We've seen this for other coronaviruses. We have no idea if that's going to happen for this one, so maybe we'll get lucky. But even then, uh, in the southern hemisphere and the tropics, uh, viruses don't show that same seasonality. Uh, we don't know how quickly we can accelerate uh, technologies. We do have good surveillance in places like Western Europe and the United States, so maybe those forces will combine to, to mitigate or limit uh, this epidemic and prevent it from becoming a pandemic. By pandemic, I mean transmission in multiple, serious levels of transmission in multiple countries. But there are places that I'm really worried about. Uh, we have no idea what's going on in North Korea, and I would imagine there are certain cases there, and there's not the ability to adequately detect and contain the virus in places like North Korea. I'm worried about any place with a depleted health system. Uh, Philippines, Myanmar, uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries like Laos and Cambodia. And then let's not forget we've got one to three million Chinese working in Africa through President Xi's Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, so there's a high likelihood we're going to see virus entry into there. We've already seen now th uh, eight cases in the Emirates and in, in the Middle East. So we have to assume that there's going to be cases moving into Africa, and I doubt uh, many of those African countries are going to have the, the ability uh, to detect and control the virus there. So those are the places I'm worried about, and indeed those are the reasons why Dr. Tedros at WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern. Less worried about the U.S. and Europe, more about some of those other places we're discussing. He very much shares those concerns, Doctor. He mentioned that in the news conference. Preventing it from becoming a pandemic, let's just round things up by discussing that. The quarantines, the travel curbs, are they helping to prevent this from becoming a pandemic? Well, you know, they're, they're, they're mixed. You know, I, I understand why the U.S. government uh, declared the travel bans, but remember, those have a downside, too, because other countries are looking what happened to China, and they're saying, well, why would I be transparent about my epidemic? Uh, you know, especially... <clears throat> Countries like Philippines that depend on a lot of commerce. Uh, what's the incentive for them to be transparent now about this epidemic? So I'm ordinarily not a big fan of uh, travel bans. I understand the U.S. government declared it because it was a new age right. and they needed time to get their arms around it, but that could have a detrimental effect. Quarantine, as I say, it's a 14th century, quarantine ship yeah. a 14th century technology. Uh, we could have done better than that. I mean, it's really tragic right. what's happening in Japan where people are act actually oh. acquiring infections during the quarantine. It's, it's unethical, in my opinion. Dr. Hotez, let's go back to Rockefeller University and Virology 101. Some of us took it, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure it was the beginning course for you. China's reporting that they want to take the plasma for antibody development from patients that have been, quote, unquote, cured. Is that normal? Is that a pipe dream? Is that pop medicine? What is that? No, it, it's a real approach and uh but the the point is it's a, it's a pretty old-fashioned approach i mean this was what was done during the 1918 yeah. pandemic uh influenza epidemic because we had nothing else to offer 
and it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. It's a bit tricky because you have to have the right pa- apply the right level of antibody. You have to time it right, and there's yeah. a lot of uncertainty around it. Um, so it's I think we have to think of it as a desperation measure, just like people are were desperate in, in 1918. The difference, though, we've had a hundred right. years to to fine tune our technology that we're not applying to this. Peter Hotes, thank you so much. From the medieval to 1919 and then on to where we are next month and the month following in China. He is at Baylor University. Henrietta Trays with us. This is on Washington. And John, I know there's like eight ways to go with Henrietta Trays with Veda Partners. She's so competent about all this. Let me start with one. May I start with one idea, John? Please give me an okay. idea. How good a week has Senate Majority Leader McConnell had, Henrietta? With all the turmoil here, he's like the senatorial bastion for the president. Has Senator McConnell had a good week? Um, morning, guys. I think Senator McConnell very often has good weeks. I think one of the best things about him is that he really knows how to um, set expectations and work with his caucus and usually ends up on uh, flying high at the end of the day. So that would be consistent with my experience. Let me bring up another idea. The tension between the United States and China over the well coronavirus. Yes, yes. Really started and, and, to pick and up. current, current. I asked National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow on Friday whether he trusted the data coming out of China regarding the coronavirus, and he couldn't give me a straight answer. A week later, Henrietta, he's being way more open about the lack of transparency that he thinks the U.S. is getting from China. How much of an issue is that right now down in Washington? Well, I'll loop that in with um, the previous question about Mitch McConnell and speak to what we're hearing from the Senate Republican Caucus, which is that they are increasingly pressuring both the majority leader and the White House to be very upfront, not just about the coronavirus, um, but about the purchase commitments that China is going to be missing or meeting uh, in the ones that they promised with the phase one trade deal. So they have grown over, let's call it the last three weeks, increasingly anxious about the logistics around the purchase acquisitions on everything from soy to manufacturing, pork, etc. It's very important for, say, Joni Ernst, who's up for re-election in Iowa. Um, Senator Tom Tillis is up for re-election in North Carolina, two huge pork-producing states. And they are going directly to the administration and to the majority leader saying, hey, we need a lot more information. Are you using the coronavirus as a crutch to fall back on in the event that China is going to be missing these purchase commitments, which we suspect that they will. Well, Henrietta, so I think the though, administration, as you know, here's the problem. I've asked the administration the same question. I've asked them if they're setting themselves up for failure by still trying to commit to this agreement that they struck a couple of months back. The answer we're getting, though, is not just from the administration. It's the Chinese that continue to say they'll meet the agreement, they'll meet their economic targets. Henrietta, how likely is that? Well, it, it, I, think it's, I think it's quite unlikely, um, and I think that's a big part of the reason why they didn't lay out exact specifics on what those targets were in a lot of different commodity cases. Um, they've given us broad numbers. They've also given us a two-year time horizon. Uh, the first basket is over a one-year time horizon, and I think you get differing responses when you ask, say, a farmer or a congressman or a senator versus the administration or China on what it means to say that you're going to commit to making those purchases in year one. When does year one start? Does it start February 14th? Did it start back in December when they made the phase one agreement? Um, the farmers are looking for aid, or sorry, purchases immediately. Um, so I'm, I'm expecting that the White House is going to want to highlight any purchases made 
as soon as today, obviously the day the deal goes into effect or in the next couple of days to sort of start telegraphing, hey, we're in the right trajectory, even though by 12 months from now, we may not have hit the full target for, say, um, you know, pork exports or poultry or what have you. And I think that they're really giving them a lot of wiggle room and area to finesse. But the underlying issue is that Republicans, primarily from those farming states, are extremely anxious that they have overpromised and will now underdeliver, and that the administration is not giving them all the information they need either on the purchase side or the coronavirus side. Henrietta, there is also a question here of how much tensions are ratcheting up between the U.S. and China, given the fact that these uh, agreements have to be put into place now, and given the fact that China is not allowing U.S. specialists to come in and actually help with the on-the-ground effort to contain the coronavirus. Can you give us a sense of how much tension Tensions are escalating behind the scenes between uh, the Xi Jinping camp and the Trump camp. Uh, my understanding is that the tensions are being exacerbated, not necessarily by the two camps directly, but by the external pressures that other people who have, you know, uh, you know, secondary effects of this trade war want to see happen. So I'm sure you're seeing, obviously, the um, escalation in rhetoric from the China hawks, the Marco Rubios and Rick Scotts of the world who are getting all over the Huawei angle, um, the various federal agencies who are ratcheting up their focus on Huawei. Um, and all those sort of externalities have had a, I don't know, if you want to call it sort of like a vice force on the administration and uh, in the United States and also in China to make sure that they stay in very close communication, are on, yeah. the, on the up and are spreading that information to the best extent they can and to the extent they want to. But those people want information. Yeah. Henrietta, very quickly here, I, just, I don't even know how to place this because to me it's almost gossip. We got an administration where a lot of people left a year, two years ago, whatever, and now the president wants to come back. Hope Hicks and others are coming back. What, is the body, what does that mean to you as a Washington insider? What's its signal that the president's bringing back the old guard? I don't believe I've ever seen that. You know, it, this is just anecdotal from my part, but I know a lot of highly qualified Senate Republican counsel who have been working to get different jobs and are extremely qualified, say, in the U.S. Treasury or um, in, in, in federal agencies at the banking or financial sector. And instead of awarding those jobs to these highly competent folks who are ready to sort of level up, the administration has t- tightened its core group. And you have to be deep on the end. You have to be extremely trusted, full MAGA in order to get yeah. a position now. And I think that's self-limiting and they sort of have to go and recycle back through the folks that they've already seen. Henry Trace, thank you so much. Veda Partners this full morning. MAGA. John? Let's talk about the data, shall we, and bring in Torsten Slock of Deutsche Bank, Chief Economist. Torsten, fantastic to have you with us on the program. Let's just talk about the data itself before we continue. The control group versus the headline print. Torsten, what should we read into each? So the control group is what goes into GDP. And what's important about that is that when you have had a very strong labor market in January, then it's a little bit puzzling why consumption would be slowing down like that. 
So the key issue continues to be whether there is any inconsistency between the labor market indicators and what's going on on the consumer side. And it does look like, from at least at the first glance here, that uh, it's a little bit worrying right. consumption has weakened down. So Matt Lazzetti and you are going to sit down and, well, he's going to do the work. You're the big star now, Torsten, so you're just going to bark at him. But you guys are going to do the partial differentials of those equations. How important is the marginal weakness in the control group to the calculation of Y equals C plus I plus G plus the net export mess? It is very important because, as usual, we should always remember that uh, consumption is 70% of GDP. That doesn't mean that the other components, capex spending in particular, which is 15% of GDP, is not important because consumer spending is normally more stable. So if you look at the cyclical components of GDP, then consumption normally is split into the durables and non-durables part. But generally speaking yeah. to your question, consumer spending is very critical because simply it is such a significant right. share at 70% of the economy. 10-year, 159 down to 158. I just printed a one. 57 handle. Lisa. Yeah, you're seeing it in the same kind of move. Uh, on the two-year Torsten, I want to connect the line from the job market to consumption, to retail sales. And you put out a really interesting chart today about how the job openings have been falling at the fastest rate since the financial crisis, paired with the S&P 500 reaching new highs. Can you draw yeah. the line from what we're seeing in retail sales to the jobs market and sort of the, the feedback loop there? So what we have worried about for a while, and as Tom was saying, is that the labor market is looking at a number of different indicators underneath the headline to be a little bit more like it's slowing down. Most importantly, wage growth has started to top out and slowly move sideways, and some indicators begin to move a bit down. But more worryingly, indicators we got earlier this week, namely job openings. Job openings is now falling at the fastest rate since the financial crisis, this is a leading indicator for what's happening in the labor market. So we are beginning to wonder, maybe there is something underneath the labor market that is beginning to look a little bit weaker. And of course, you start asking, what could it be the reason why the labor market would be slowing down? And there could be two reasons. One reason could be either that we're getting to the tail end of the corporate tax cuts. Remember, a fiscal lift always has a temporary effect and always has a temporary boost that lasts in this case, it lasted for five, six quarters. So maybe we're no longer seeing that boost from the corporate tax cut. Alternatively, the second explanation is that maybe in an election year where we could either get more business regulation or we could get more trade war, maybe businesses are beginning to pull a little bit back because there is just more uncertainty maybe on the horizon. It's a bit more cloudy, the outlook, than what it has been for the last several quarters. Torsten, it's still early days. We don't have a huge amount of data to go on to say with conviction that we've started to see a cyclical peak in the labour market and we're starting to roll over. It's a few months of data. I would point to initial jobless claims, Torsten, and just ask you the question, is that the guide for where we are in the labour market at the moment? And given the fact that we're still down near 200k, is the coast clear to some degree? For now, it looks like the coast is clear, but the, the horizon, if you will, for that view is a little bit shorter. My colleagues, uh, Matt Mercedi, Brett Ryan, and Justin Weidman, basically did a very interesting study, which exactly found that the best leading indicator still is jobless claims. It actually outperforms from a forecasting perspective some of the other indicators, including the SAM rule and other indicators that try to predict whether a slowdown is coming or not. So you're right. The weekly data we have from the labor market through jobless claims, it does send a strong signal. So in that sense, yes, it is still looking like things are okay for now, okay. but uh, we are still watching very carefully when some indicators like jobless, I'm sorry, like job openings is slowing down right. as much as it is. Torsten, my head is spinning. Okay, okay. I've got retail sales soggy and I got the 10 year in, it's out at 158. 
I've got claims, John, which are better than ever. I mean, back to the polka when they were playing out west in 1969-70. And I've got no wage growth. And you're telling me, Torsten, there's no inflation out there. How do you put that together for a GDP call at Deutsche Bank? I mean, what's your view 12 months forward on GDP, given this incredible super swimming in? So the really good answer to that question is that, uh, well, let's do a review of the Fed policy. Because we don't understand, meaning the Fed, we, the market, really, nobody has a good idea why inflation is so low. The unemployment rate is at the lowest level in 50 years. And you're seeing wage growth at the bottom of the income distribution has been accelerating. But in aggregate, in particular, wage growth for the higher parts of the income distribution has not been growing very strongly. Thank so you. in aggregate, there's very limited, very limited wage growth, which has basically led the Fed to the conclusion, maybe because of this limited wage growth, maybe we do have more room to lower interest rates. So let's do a review, which will come out, as we know, by the middle of this year, and try to figure out, well, yeah, but, maybe but, we can actually allow rates to be lower. What he just said there is critical. By the middle of this year, does Chairman Powell have that luxury, Lisa? That's what I don't, you know, that's what I find fascinating, is does Madame Lagarde have that luxury? Does Chairman Powell have that luxury? It's a good question, because they have to move ahead of the actual downturn that they actually see in order for it to be back and prevent. That's the theory. Uh, the other question and the theory is that we're in a Goldilocks kind of period, and it seems increasingly tense, given the fact that we're seeing a slowdown in job openings, and we're seeing, uh, you know, retail sales, at least in the control group, come in a little bit softer. Torsten, how long can we be in a Goldilocks period? Well, if I look at my Bloomberg screen and I type ECFC go, then I will oh, see I what consensus expectations are to the U.S. economic outlook. And if you take on the quarterly profile, it's just absolutely stunning oh. that the consensus is completely flat, 1.9 for the next six quarters of GDP growth, and also exactly 1.9 for inflation, meaning core PCE. So we are... Uh, half-jokingly said, we are in a 1.9 economy where everything is flat in terms of inflation, everything is flat in terms of GDP outlook. There is a number of risks on the horizon, not only virus, which is, of course, what we spend most of our time on at the moment, but also risks in terms of election, risks in terms of what's happening with the slowdown in Germany, well, risks in terms of all the other issues that have been this, on the agenda in terms of debating the outlook. Torsten, this is great. I've never seen this function before, or ECFC go. Down at the bottom of it, it's got a 10-year yield at 2.12% out of bunch of years. Torsten, is that even feasible? We could get out to a ginormous 212 so that's the wonders of that screen, namely that it shows you also expectations of what the Fed will do from the consensus and what 10-year rates will do. And as you know, uh, another chart uh, that I sent you once in a while is that the consensus always has to view that rates are going up. And that is often, of course, uh, wrong. And we're debating now, is that likely? And with this scenario that we're debating also about the downside yeah. risks, it does look like there's more downside risk to raise than there's upside risk. Yeah, Torsten, I, I, I know it's been a mediocre interview because John Farrow didn't participate. He's over-calculating four dozen long-stem roses. I've told you the function ECFC every week for about five years. <laughs> it's a I great know. Function. Get out of the kitchen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, John, you know, four dozen roses. Did you get it down to $6 a stem? <laughs> Why are we talking about this? <laughs> Torsten, we're going to leave it there. Great to catch Torsten, up with you. Thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. I really Deutsche want Bank. to say, Matt Lozetti's just killed it, you know, is the U.S. economist for Deutsche Bank, is they really shifted down towards that 1.9% number.
This is a joy. Here's what we try to keep our promises. And we were freezing on the deck in Davos with uh, Jason Bordoff of Columbia University. And because of news flow and breaking news or whatever, we shortchanged him on time and we begged him to try to do more with us when he was back at Columbia University in New York. And we're thrilled, thrilled he could join us this morning. And what we're going to do, folks, is sort of adapt to the news which is the, you know, it's Valentine's Day. Perfect, Lisa. Promise is kept. Bonds. We're going to talk about big oil. We're going to talk about how they're adapting to the zeitgeist and can they make and can they keep promises. Jason Bordoff is with Columbia. He's uh, president and senior director for energy and climate change, uh, works with the National Security Council, and is truly one of the leading voices on energy and climate in America. Jason, BP came out with a massive splash you know, it had a whole PR feel to it. How do they make those promises? You know, they're going to be carbon-free, whatever. How do they make those promises and then actually execute? Well, those are the details that were. Thanks for having me on. Those are the details we're waiting to hear from them about exactly how they're going to how they're going to do that. It, it was a significant announcement. They went further than most other companies yeah. because they said that they would actually bring to net zero by 2050 the emissions from the use of all the oil and gas they produce, not just what they emit, but what happens when we put it into our cars and everything else. So how do you do that? You can capture the CO2 and store it. You can maybe offset it with trees or, or, or carbon removal, or you produce a lot less oil and gas and a lot more of something else like renewables. So they're fundamentally promising to be a very different kind of energy company in 2050. Then the question is, how do they achieve that and how do they do it in the way that delivers the kind do- of returns and dividends that people expect? A whole bunch of questions here. Professor Bordoff, do they have a model to work on? I mean, is this original execution or is somebody in some other area actually accomplished this before? Well, we've seen companies like the Danish Oil and Natural Gas Company that became Orsted. They became a renewables uh, company. The scale of a company like BP, Shell, Total, these are so massive. Uh, They have the project expert management expertise, the capital budgets, the R&D, the engineering resources to develop the kind of solutions we're going to need to really achieve deep decarbonization. It's not just about solar and wind. If you want to think about how you're going to do airplanes or heavy trucks or the industrial sector, we're going to need hydrogen, carbon capture, ammonia, a host of solutions. But you need companies at that scale to deliver. Professor, on Wednesday, uh, House Republicans began revealing their plan to combat climate change. And it was sort of this concession to especially younger voters, even within the conservative party, that they had to sort of change their stance a bit. Did you have a chance to sort of look through it? Do you have a sense of what they're proposing? Yeah, I do. And, and it's uh, it's encouraging to see Republicans in the U.S. responding to the rising pressure among especially younger generation on both sides of the aisle, more on the Democrats, but really on both sides, to recognize the urgency of the climate challenge. I think it is clearly not enough. It has a heavy focus on uh, innovation and investing in R&D. And that's going to be important. Uh, but market forces alone are not going to deliver the solutions we need as much as we've seen a reduction in U.S. emissions because of shifting from coal to gas. Cheap natural gas has done that without much policy. We're going to need a lot stronger policy support to put a price on carbon or do something else to drive this transition. So given that, how big of a shift is this for Republicans in the House uh, who have traditionally been associated with uh, climate change denial and, and certainly President Trump's stance here? How big of a shift is it to see them actually proposing anything at all? 
I think it's a shift and it's a very encouraging one and it's a recognition that people widely recognize that climate change is a reality, it's an urgent problem, and we all need to work together toward a solution. But again, we're not yet at a level where we're taking the scale of the challenge seriously. But, you know, these things change gradually and change over time. Jason Bordoff uh, with us with Columbia University, something down the line to challenge. We're thrilled that he was with us, of course, Senior Director for Energy and Climate Change uh, uh, as well at Columbia University on SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.